great episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. If you don't know by now, my name is Christopher Brown and I will be your host today. Since the launch of the podcast, I've been asked the same thing. Why do you do this? And I give everyone the exact same answer. This podcast is about talking to people in an intimate setting and just having a discussion. Today, we often find ourselves becoming keyboard warriors and have forgotten the lost art of having a conversation. So with that in mind, I started this podcast to achieve one goal, get people talking again with no notes, no questions. I sit down with subjects to learn from them about them. Today, we continue our special series of episodes with the Green Party of Canada leadership candidates. Today, I sit down with Dimitri Lascaris. Dimitri and I talk about his duty to serve, how he became involved with the Green Party of Canada, and how he envisions working with Western Conservative premiers. So here now is Cross-Border Interviews featuring Dimitri Lascaris. Dimitri, do you mind if I call you Dimitri? No, by all means. Okay, Dimitri, uh, every single first question I have for everyone that comes on the podcast, uh, whether a politician or a former politician or candidate for a a position, where does your sense of duty come from? Well, I think it comes from the fact that I regard myself as being a very fortunate human being. Uh, First of all, the mere fact that I was born in this country. Uh, is in and of itself a very significant advantage because this is one of the wealthiest and most democratic countries on earth. Uh, you know, I don't have to walk out into the street and feel, you know, that my my personal security is at risk. My government is not preventing me from expressing my points of view. There, there's plenty of economic uh, economic opportunity relative to most countries, although there are certainly a lot of people in this country who are struggling. Uh, and I personally have uh, had a very good life. And so, uh, you know, when I got to the age of uh, 50 and I started to look at what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, uh, I realized that uh, because of my good fortune, at least the conclusion I came to was that I had a duty to uh, give back to particularly those who are least advantaged in our society and outside of our society in any way that I could. Uh, and I've tried to do that in a number of ways. And one of them is by being politically active. And and now I, I find your story fascinating because your family uh, immigrated to Canada from Greece, correct? Yes, my parents arrived in the 50s. Uh, neither of them had even a year of high school education. Uh, they couldn't speak any English. They had uh, just a smattering of dollars in their pocket. And if it wasn't for the fact that the Canadian government at that time was actually paying for the voyage of people from Southern Europe to come and do effectively what was menial labor in Canada, my, my parents wouldn't have been able to make it here at all. They were emerging from a Greece that was racked by a really brutal Nazi occupation followed by a civil war. And, uh, and, and, uh, you, you know, I, I, I will never forget that those, those are my roots and that's where I came from. And I remember seeing how they struggled. Uh, and, and, and I think about that every day, frankly. Now, now were they political when they got to Canada or did they try to stay out of politics because they were just so happy to be out of that, as you say, uh, out of Greece and into a country that was opening and welcoming to them? They definitely were not. I mean, my father was very vocal in sort of family discussions about politics. Uh, My mother was not politically engaged at all. Outside of the family environment, neither of them was politically active. And I think really it came down to what you just said, Chris. They were were just really trying to ensure that their kids had opportunities and that they themselves uh, could secure their future and have a good life. Um, 
But I have to say also that to the extent that they expressed any political inclination to me, they tended to be on the right side of the political spectrum, not the left. <laughs> and that was true of my extended family as well. Uh, a lot of conservatism in my extended family and my immediate family. Uh, and when I when I sort of started, started thinking for myself at the age of 18 years old, um, my views began to evolve over a period of years, and I eventually ended up where I am today, which is a very different political place from where my parents were. Well, and I, I find your your journey to the Green Party like really fascinating because you you decide to go into law and you become a respected law uh, legal uh, opinion. Uh, you, you become a journalist. You get into the law field, and then you decide to leave a successful law firm to run for the Green Party. That decision did, probably did not come lightly for you, did it? Well, I was uh, I was looking for a way out of the legal profession for a few years because although it was very good to me from an economic perspective, I was very disenchanted with the legal profession. Um, and it started really from my very first days from uh, you know working in a Wall Street law firm in New York City. And I came to realize fairly quickly that the legal profession had put itself at the service of the most privileged members of our society. Uh, and I certainly as a class actions lawyer, I had the opportunity to do a lot of things, you know, uh, to pursue a lot of cases that were in the public interest, things that I didn't have the opportunity to do when I was in Wall Street. But nonetheless, I could see that it was a profession that was very privileged uh, and that was really not paying attention to uh, the crisis of access to justice in this country and really was part of the problem, not part of the solution to the crisis of access to justice. And it is a severe crisis. Uh, so, you know, when I finally hit a point where I felt like, uh, you know, from a financial security perspective and taking care of my kids, putting them through school, I didn't need to make money. I bailed out right away and said, and I'm just going to, you know, I was 52 and I was just entering the most lucrative part of my career. Um, but I was secure, so there was really no economic reason for me to continue. Uh, and I, I jumped at the opportunity, and uh, I've never looked back. I've never regretted, not for a day. And now, uh, now the, the, the the typical question I got to ask here, the uh, uh, all encompassing question: Why, why in 2015 did you decide the Green Party is the party for me? For someone who, like you said, came from a more con, uh, conservative background growing up, why did you uh, end up with the Green Party? Well, I. Um I, I think it comes really down to the six core values of the party. Uh, you know, it's uh, respect for diversity, nonviolence, social justice, participatory democracy, sustainability, and ecological wisdom. And uh, when I looked at those core values, I said that this really defines who I am, who I've become, may not have necessarily defined who I was when I, <laughs> uh, you know, went off to law school. But after, you know, 50 some odd years of life, that's that's that encapsulated my values. And I also was very intrigued by the fact that the Green Party, because it is not an established party, it doesn't have decades of sort of bureaucracy and an, an entrenched establishment built up within it, that there was the possibility for some really exciting change and reform within the party that didn't exist in the three uh, establishment parties. Uh, and and my experience uh, since then has borne that out. Uh, and so I, I thought this was the best fit for me. And I have to tell you, I wasn't I wasn't 100 percent sure that that was the right choice. Um, 
You know, I have I have doubts about party politics generally, not not doubts that apply to the Green Party in particular. I think I think the majority of Canadians have doubts about the uh, party system because yeah. you, you do not see the overwhelming uh, a majority of Canadians uh, a member of a certain political party. And, and I understand their reticence to become engaged politically. I mean, the, 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 the political party system has failed in many ways. Uh, and we have to find a way to make it responsive to the needs of ordinary Canadians. And, uh, and really, um, you know, and, and we have to find a way to start being honest with people. I think that this is one of the hallmarks of politicians today. And I think people are right to feel a, a profound sense of distrust is that there's a lot of dishonesty in the political class. They're not really speaking uh, they're not speaking in a frank and informed way about the problems that are complicating the lives of ordinary Canadians, uh, about the threats that confront us, about the solutions to these problems. I think people sense that at a fundamental level. I think pretty much everybody does. So I get it. And, and, uh, and this was something that uh, was weighed on my mind. But ultimately, I decided that if we didn't become engaged politically and actually try to exercise political power, we weren't going to solve the problems that are confronting us. Ultimately, we have to get political power. We have to be able to affect legislation. We have to be able to affect the regulatory priorities of our regulatory institutions. And without political power, we can't do that. And and I'm glad you mentioned that because I do have a few questions about that later on in the interview. Um, But... uh 2019, uh, the election, uh, the federal election in 2019 happened. The Green Party uh, won three seats, the most it's won in uh, its history. Elizabeth May announces that she's going to step down. Um, Dimitri, why did you make the decision that you did to enter the leadership race? Well, it was a hard decision. Uh, I started thinking about it back in, I would say, within a month of Elizabeth's uh, Uh, announcement, I began to think about it seriously. And I had, um, you know, I I mentioned a couple of the qualms I had about becoming, you know, really engaged in electoral and party politics. Uh, But there were others. Uh, For one thing, I was, I had a life that I was very happy with, you know, I was doing a lot of uh, activism, pro bono legal work, independent journalism, I didn't feel any kind of pressing need to move on from that life. I really loved the life that I had. Uh, I also was cognizant of the fact that, you know, politicians, particularly leaders of political party, uh, it's very difficult for them to maintain a decent degree of privacy. I was concerned about how this public expo- exposure might affect my family. Uh, I was concerned about the fact that I would be ha- it, would, it would effectively be a nine to five job, uh, whereas I was kind of free to do whatever I felt on any particular day with the, the, the new life that I had. Um, and I was also, and I think this is where the, the biggest reticence that I had, was that I knew that somebody who was putting forward a platform like the one that I want to pursue was going to encounter a lot of resistance from the economic and political establishment. And that's not something that I was really sort of looking forward to having to deal with. <laughs> uh, so I took three months to decide. And the process for me began with me putting forward a, formulating over a period of weeks, a tentative 50 page platform. And I sent that around to dozens of people around the country, uh, people I respect who are all progressive, but not necessarily Greens. A lot of them were Greens, some of them were NDP, some of them were independent, uh, had sort of given up on electoral politics, and I got a, an amazing feedback from them. Hundreds and hundreds of pages of commentary, which I'm still digesting. Then I started looking very closely at the other candidates who had entered the race, uh, started thinking about whether they were gonna put forward the kind of bold platform that I think the party needs. And there are really many great people in the race. 
but by the time it got around to February, I'd come to the conclusion that the platform that I wanted to put forward after having heard from so many of these allies around the country uh, was not really being advanced by any of the other candidates. Uh, and I decided at that point that I needed to get in. And I, I, I frankly, it, you know, it's, I think it's hard to take this seriously because there's so much cynicism in politics today and <laughs> rightly so. But I really did it from a sense of duty. I, I felt that this was something that I was obliged to do given my good fortune. Uh, and so it wasn't until, uh, you know, mid-February until I made that decision after, you know, three months of careful consideration. Now, uh, on your website, you uh, on team uh, Dimitri dot, I just want to make sure dot CA, which will be linked on in the show notes. Um, you say you want to uh, unite the pr- progressives in, under the Green Party banner. How do yeah. you do that? Well, you have to put forward a set of policies that actually speak to their their desires and their concerns. So, for example, um, there is a, a, a crisis of inequality in this country. Uh, you know, there are 10 Canadians who control something in the range of $65 billion of wealth. There are, on any given night, tens of thousands of people living in the streets. It's an absolute disgrace for a country of our wealth, our prosperity. There are millions of Canadians, many of them children living in poverty. And uh, I think one thing we have to do is we have to address this crisis of inequality by uh, substantially increasing taxes on the wealthy. And I think there's a real strong appetite for that. So, you know, in the United States, uh, a firebrand progressive politician by the name of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez put forward a proposal to increase the top marginal tax rate to 70 percent. And this is something that's not well known. But for most of for much of the post-World War II period, the top marginal tax rate in Canada and the United States was an excess of 90 percent. And it was an excess of 70 percent, I think, right up until the 1980s. And they did a poll. And they asked Americans how they felt about this. America is hardly a socialist country. And they found that a majority of Americans felt that they supported a top marginal tax rate of 70 percent. I fully support that. And nobody in the last election, none of the parties that have representation in parliament, including the Green Party, put forward that kind of a proposal for redistributing wealth to the poor. Uh, You know, another thing that I think the left is very concerned about is militarism. They're very concerned about our participation in NATO. They're very concerned about Canada's opposition to a treaty banning nuclear weapons. They're very concerned about the fact that we're spending tens of billions of dollars a year on merchants of death. So I think we should be talking about drastically reducing military expenditures and reallocating that money to the healthcare system and to social justice. Uh, I think we should be talking very seriously about whether the capitalist system is really the core cause of the climate crisis. I believe it is. Uh, And I think somebody has to come out and actually say that in parliament, challenge the powers that be on this whole question of whether capitalism is really at the root of the fact that we are confronted by an existential climate emergency. Naomi Klein has taken the position that that's the case. Avi Lewis, many other uh, highly respected figures in the environmental movement. I share their view. Now, Uh, and I think the left has, just to conclude, I think the left has people I call the left, the progressive Canadians, which I think constitutes a majority of Canadians, agree with these fundamental precepts, but nobody is really putting forward the kind of bold platform that they want to see. And I think if somebody does that, they have an opportunity opportunity to unite the progressives in this country. Now, policy is great. 
I'm a policy wonk. I love policy. I read policy. When uh, parties release their platforms, I dive into it. Um, but Canadian, the majority of Canadians are not policy wonks. Let's be honest. Um, yep. You look at the last election, the Green Party of Canada, they traditionally do well at the beginning of all campaigns because people want to vote for something. By the end of the campaign, and we saw it in the last election, strategic voting started to a strategic vote started to take place where Canadians decided, well, I would rather vote for the Greens or the NDP or the Liberals, but I want to stop X party. I want to stop the Conservatives. I want to stop the Liberals in my riding. So they switched their vote from that Green vote to another party to stop another party. How does the Green Party under your leadership stop that? Uh, strategic voting? How do you get people on board to buy into the policy that they may not want to in, uh, dive ahead uh, deep into and look at and say, okay, here's how it's going to help me, but I, I, I like it, but I need to stop this party before I can vote strategically and vote the way I want to vote. So how does the Green Party under your leadership attract those voters and keep those voters in your base and stop the bleed to other parties? Well, that's a great question, and it's one that's going to be talked about a lot in this uh, this, elect, this uh, leadership campaign. I think the first – I mean, let me start by saying the first-past-the-post system is an absolute disgrace, and it is, <laughs> is fundamentally anti-democratic. Okay, It's absolutely clear. Any party – any, any system that enables a party with, you know, approximately 40% of the vote or popular vote or even less, and I'm talking about the people who actually vote, there are 8 million Canadians in the last election who didn't even vote. And somehow a party that got, you know, in the range of 40%, I think it was slightly less than that, of those who voted ended up with a substantial uh, majority, not the last election, but in the 2015 election. Uh, and that's happened repeatedly. So we, we have a real problem with first past the post. But let's look at what the NDP has managed to do within the first past the post system. They managed to win dozens of seats election after election after election, despite the first past the post system. They've not broken into power, but they've consistently done much better than the Green Party has done. And I think part of the reason for that, a big part of the reason for that, is that they have spoken to the needs of organized labor. You know, they, they, they really they really champion the cause of workers, or at least they in recent years they've been pretending to do that, whereas there is a perception within our party that uh, not within our party, but outside of the party, uh, and particularly amongst people on of, of, of a progressive inclination, that the Green Party is anti-labor. So I think we have to start talking about workers' rights and really defending workers' rights. I think we have to be talking about ways in which we, from a legislative perspective, can strengthen the ability of workers to organize, to bargain collectively, to increase safety in the workplace. We have to be start start talking about substantial increases in the minimum wage. You know, these are things that I think are going to attract the working class voters to, to our party and help us to gr substantially increase our vote. We can do better than the NDP has done within the first past the post system. There's no reason why we can't do better than that. I'm not saying we can get rid of strategic voting altogether within a first past the post system. I don't think we can completely eliminate it, but we can certainly dramatically increase our seat count by speaking to the needs of workers and organized laborers and stop ceding to the NDP because that's what we've effectively done. We've ceded to the NDP the all important vote from Canadian workers. That's got to stop. And so that's something that in my platform I talk about a lot that I'll be talking about a lot is how do we get Canadian workers on our side? How do we get organized labor on our side? 
And the other issue that I find, uh, and you talked about it a little bit there, um, the majority of Canadians will view the Green Party as one issue party, correct? Would yes. you agree with that? Well, I don't know if it's a majority, but certainly that's there are a lot of people who say that. Absolutely. Exactly. And I, I, I referenced the majority, but and I, I shouldn't speak for the majority of people, but people will look at the Green Party and say, you are a one issue party. I, I cannot vote for the one issue. I need I need diversity. So do you need to start speaking to all Canadians and not just the labor, as you say, with the NDP, but all Canadians and say we are sure. not just a one issue party. We we do have a wealth of policy that will help everyday Canadians. I, totally. I, you know, I just highlighted the the, the, the the question of organized labor and workers' rights as one way in which we can uh, outflank the NDP and also bring into our fold some of those 8 million Canadians who didn't vote in the last election. It's a lot of votes. So what are other ways in which we can do that? Well, first of all, there are racialized communities that are concerned with carding. They're concerned with police brutality. The indigenous population in this country is grotesquely overrepresented in the correctional system. Over 30% of the inmates in Canada's correctional system are indigenous, and they constitute less than 5% of the population. So we have a problem of systemic racism in our, in our justice system, our so-called justice system. And I think we have to address that in a very bold and imaginative way. So we can bring into our fold not only workers, but racial people from racialized communities and people who are poor but normally don't vote because they think that the electoral system has abandoned them by talking about things like a universal basic income and strengthening our healthcare system and strengthening uh, and, and, and advancing a pharmacare program and making dental care accessible to poor Canadians. So there's a whole range of issues in which we which, which we can champion and we should be championed because they are harmonious with our six core values that are going to bring a lot of voters into our fold. They may not necessarily be NDP supporters. They might come from the, the left wing of the Liberal Party. They might be people who are disenfranchised and they don't vote at all. Uh, and, and, and by doing that, I think we can greatly attenuate the nefarious effects of this first-past-the-post system that has been such an obstacle to this party, uh, you know, uh, achieving its rightful place in Canadian politics. Now, now we, we see the rise of the Greens pr uh, provincially. Ontario, you had a breakthrough with one elected ML, uh, MPP uh, in uh, Guelph. Uh, PEI, your official opposition in uh, BC, you do have the three or two MLAs. And then in uh, New Brunswick, you have three. Does the Green Party of Canada need to start fostering that relationship with the provincial Greens to let them do better? So that way, if people start buying in provincially, they can buy potentially buy in federally as well? Well, I think the Green Party has the Green Party federally has tried uh, to be quite supportive of the provincial Green parties, but it, 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 I think at the end of the day, people are not necessarily going to decide whether to vote for us or not based upon the performance of a provincial party. I think that will help. I think it will be useful, and I think we certainly should be supportive of the provincial Green parties. Uh, but the fact of the matter remains that outside of PEI, uh, you know, we either do not have. Uh, significant presence within the legislatures of the provinces, or uh, we have a very, very small presence. And what happened in BC in the last election where we actually held the balance of power was extremely unusual. You know, we won three seats, but uh, it was really a, a sort of exceptional electoral configuration that allowed us to exercise significant influence. I don't think we can count on you know, one, two or three seats in a provincial legislature enabling us to actually have an influence on provincial politics. We have to find a way to break through and become a much more 
potent force within the provincial legislatures and the federal government in order for us to affect meaningful change. Uh, so I think we should be supportive of the provincial parties. Uh, we should certainly uh, learn whatever lessons we can from whatever successes they have achieved and they've start to, started to rack up some significant successes. But at the end of the day, we are not going to become a potent force in Canada's parliament unless we speak to the needs of a much broader swath of the electi- of the voting public and the non-voting public, I should say, the, pu- the public who don't vote. Yeah. Now, before we get into the actual policy part of this interview, um, what makes you the best candidate for this uh, position? What makes you the best candidate that w- could lead the Green Party of Canada into more seats, potentially party status in the House of Commons, potentially uh, opposition, or even government? What makes you the best candidate? Well, uh, I want to answer your question by first of all acknowledging that my 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 opponents. Uh, it's hard for me to even talk to, to talk about them in that, in those terms as being opponents. <laughs> These are people, colleagues of mine, who are uh, vying to be leader of the Green Party of Canada. There are some amazing people in that crew, and so yeah, I do think I'm the best qualified. But there are a lot of amazing people in that crew. You know, people we have a we have an astrophysicist. We have a you know somebody who worked in the Department of Justice for years. Uh, we have a lawyer uh, who was working with the International Criminal Court, uh, and I could go on and on, you know, the leader of the Green Party of Quebec. These are people who are very talented, very capable. Uh, so although I do think, and I will explain why in one second, I am the most qualified, these are great people, and I'm honored to be in this race with them. Uh, having said that, it seems to me that what we really need at the end of the day in order for us to address the, cro- the problems and the crises that are confronting us is something along the lines of a revolution. We need revolutionary change. And in order to, uh, to achieve revolutionary change, you have to have a demonstrated ability to speak truth to power. And I have done that in my career. I've done that over and over again. I, you know, I came to Canada in 2004 after working on Wall Street, started a securities class actions practice, and I began uh, to build that practice from scratch uh, with a team of small lawyers. And we ended up taking on the most powerful corporations in this country who had committed or were alleged to have committed securities fraud, who were alleged to have engaged in environmental depredations, who were alleged in one case to have uh, engaged in extraordinary human rights violations, a company I sued called Nevsun, a gold miner that had used slave labor in Eritrea. Uh, And over and over again, I achieved success in the face of very difficult odds. And oftentimes I came under very extreme pressure from uh, the business lobby and these large corporations. Uh, who sought to uh, undermine the efforts we were making to defend the rights of ordinary Canadians. And we won again and again and again. So I think I have a demonstrated record of speaking truth to power, of succeeding in the face of fierce resistance from powerful constituencies. And whoever is going to lead this party and achieve meaningful and dramatic change, which is precisely what we need, has to have the ability to do that. And I think that that's something that really distinguishes me from the other candidates. Awesome. Now, uh, we're going to be moving into policy. And as the uh, Alberta podcast, I have to ask the Alberta question here. And I'm assuming you already know what it's going to be. Um, What's your views on the oil sands in Alberta? Do you think that do you think they have a place in Canadian economy or do you think that we need to phase them out? We need to phase them out as rapidly as humanly possible. Why so? Because... If we don't, it's going to result in it's going to contribute significantly to the unlivability of this planet. I mean, that's just that's just the science. 
you know, we, this is an opinion, you know, the opinion that, you know, let's, let's take the, let's look at James Hansen, uh, NASA scientist, one of the most uh, respected uh, climate scientists in the world. He said, you know, that if we, if we exploit fully the resources or the reserves of the, of the uh, oil sands, it's game over for the climate. He said that years ago, and that's absolutely clear. So this is not really a choice. It's not an opinion. It's not really up for rational debate at this point because the scientific evidence is overwhelming. The question that we have to deal with, and it's an absolutely pressing question, is how are we going to uh, support the Alberta economy, the workers of Alberta, during this very difficult transition? And it's going to be challenging, no doubt about it. And I, I, I'm very, uh, I'm very attracted to the, uh, the the position that has been taken by people in Alberta. Uh, people like Reagan Poichek, who is a co-founder of Reclaim Alberta, who's talked about the pressing need to uh, to deal with the problem of orphaned wells and the tailings ponds in the oil sands. There are uh, pro- it will probably be necessary for us to expend. When I say us, I mean our society, but ultimately it should be primarily the polluters who pay for this, not the government provincially or federally, tens of billions of dollars and possibly hundreds of billions of dollars to remediate orphaned wells and the tar sands, uh, tailings ponds in Alberta. That is a massive amount of employment. And as Reagan Boychuk and Abby Lewis have argued, I think it was in a Toronto Star op-ed, this could result in a reclamation jobs boom. What the government of uh, Justin Trudeau has done in the pandemic, where they've, they've, uh, they've ponied up uh, something less than $2 billion in order to deal with the problem of orphan, orphan wells. That's a drop in the bucket compared to the actual needs of the environment within Alberta. If you look at what the Alberta Energy Regulator has said privately, there, there, you know, there, were, private in, uh, there were internal estimates that were leaked to the public. The number could be as high as $250 billion. It's certainly much, much higher than $2 billion. And if you were serious about remediating the orphan wells problems, uh, orphan wells problems and the, and the tailings ponds in Alberta, you would be expending far more money and employing far more people to deal with that problem. So that is a potential uh, source of tremendous employment within the, the province of Alberta. And I am absolutely uh, committed to uh, ensuring that the province has the resources necessary to remediate orphaned wells and the tailings ponds as quickly as possible. Now, uh, the, good place to start. sorry. Now the issue is we have a premier of Alberta who has said, if you are against the oil sands, if you are against the oil uh, economy, we don't want to work with you. So mm-hmm. how, how do you start that conversation with a person, with a government who does not want to look at potential shutdown or even the reduction of the oil industry in Alberta because they are so heavily reliant on it. Well, look, if I were the prime minister, of course, I would prefer to work with all the provincial leaders. But let's be frank. Jason Kenney is quite passionately committed to the future of the oil industry. And getting him on board is going to be a challenge. And frankly, I'm skeptical that it can be done. If I were in a position to do that, I would try. Uh, I don't have a lot of hope that Mr. Kenney and his government would ultimately accede to this approach. Uh, but uh, if that were the case, I would use the powers of the federal government to go to, to bypass him. And, you know, the government has the jurisdiction. You know, I'm a lawyer. I understand the Constitution. The federal government has the jurisdiction, if necessary, to affect that transition and to ensure that the resources are available to generate what, you know, as I mentioned, Reagan Boychuk and Abby Lewis have called a reclamation's job boom 
and to phase out the oil sands industry as rapidly as possible. We have the jurisdiction, we have the resources, we can do it. It's preferable that that be done cooperatively with the provinces, but we're at a stage now where we can't we can't allow ourselves to be held hostage by people like Jason Kenney. If, if he's not willing to play ball, then we have to move on. We have to do what's necessary in order to protect our country. Now, the biggest uh, to play devil's advocate here, um, you say that we need to do something now because tomorrow's too late. Um, You look back on history in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s. We were hearing the same report of uh, if we don't do something now for climate change, we can never reverse it. At what point do we have to say, okay, we get it that we have to do something, but people are not buying into it, so we have to figure it out legislative-wise or uh, uh, just forgetting about it at, at the end of the day? Because mm-hmm. at every single decade, every single year, it seems that we come out with another report that says, hey, if we don't do something now, it's too late. So when you talk to the people who are not really green, how do you get them on board to say, we need to do it now? Well, I, I think if you look, I'm not, I, I don't know that I accept the premise of your question. If you look at polls uh, in the last two years, they show that concern amongst Canadians for the climate emergency is at unprecedented levels. I think the vast majority of Canadians are completely uh, uh, persuaded now by the abundance of scientific evidence that we have to act. These things that were said back in you know the early 2000s were true. All that's happened is that, uh, you know, in fact, if anything, our subsequent experience has shown that the scientific community underestimated the rapidity and the severity of climate change, not that it overestimated it. That's what the scientific evidence has shown over and over and over again. And Canadians get that. They understand that. Uh, And they want change. And they're frustrated with the fact that Justin Trudeau is doing things like buying the the, the, the uh, the, the, the Trans Mountain Pipeline that he continues to subsidize fossil fuels. I think that's a big part of the reason why Justin Trudeau did not manage to secure a majority in the last election. You know, I, I think that there that the, there is a tremendous groundswell of support for dramatic action to deal with the climate emergency in this country. I think all we need is to have the political will to, 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 to rise to that challenge, and we don't have it. I don't have any concern about public support for this. And I, I, I acknowledge that within the province of Alberta itself, uh, and Saskatchewan, not just Alberta, there may not yet be broad-based public support uh, for this transition and for phasing out uh, fossil fuels as rapidly as possible. And I get, and I, but, but, I, I will say that that was just a question that I've been hearing because when I yeah. talk to Albertans, even Saskatchewans, uh, Saskatchewanians, or however they want to be pronounced, um, that's what they say: is we don't, we want, we are good the way we are. Like it's, it seems to be working, and I see report after report that we need to do something now, but. Canada's a drop in the bucket on the global scale. So why do why does Canada have to shut down everything while the rest of the world can still produce? Yeah, well, I, I think that for, I think that they I, I acknowledge that that sentiment is there and it's widespread in uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan. Uh, but I think that that res- that sentiment arises largely from the fact that we've not persuaded the people of Alberta and Saskatchewan that they will not be left behind in this transition. We have not done a good job of persuading them of that. We need to demonstrate to them that we have a plan, not only to preserve the jobs that will be lost uh, or could be lost in the transition, but that we can even offer them better jobs and even increase the levels of employment 
You know, and so that's why I've been talking, for example, about the profound need to remediate uh, orphaned wells and the tailings ponds in Alberta and Saskatchewan, because that is a tremendous source of employment. It has also been demonstrated that the renewable energy in, in industry generates far more employment per dollar of investment than fossil fuels. I don't think we've done a good job of communicating that message to workers in Alberta and Saskatchewan. But if they understand that there are going to be not only the same jobs, but better jobs available to them as we go through this transition, they will be fully on board. We just haven't convinced them of that. We haven't put forward a plan that is persuasive uh, as a country. Uh, so that's the challenge. If we do that, I think that they will join with the rest of Canada, which overwhelmingly at this stage is demanding dramatic action to deal with the climate emergency. Now, before I get get to, into my next set of questions, I'm assuming you're in favor of a carbon levy, correct? Yes. Um, rural communities uh, may be more uh, hit, uh, will be hit hardest with a potential carbon levy, an increase to the current carbon levy, because they have to drive further, they have to uh, commute further, they have to buy groceries, their groceries get shipped to uh, rural communities, and it costs more for groceries compared to downtown Toronto, downtown Montreal, downtown any major city. How do you... How would you under uh, and how would the Green Party under your leadership uh, address rural communities and still uh, charging a carbon levy to all Canadians? Well, I, I think that the real look, first of all, we have to localize our economy. We have to stop. We have to stop forcing people to go abroad or go afar from, you know, far afield from their own homes in order to work and in order to get food and and, and just to fulfill the daily necessities of life. So this is another major plank of, of my platform. Localize the economy. Uh, get rid of the commuter system, P bring bring agriculture uh, to our communities, grow things locally. That's very important. Uh, but also, you know, to ensure that there is a system, a proper system of credits in place so that the revenue generated from the carbon tax will, will flow to people who are in most in need of that revenue. You know, ultimately, what we're trying to do is incentivize people to move away to other forms of uh, of of, of uh, energy generation without uh, prejudicing the well-being of the most vulnerable members of society and ordinary members of society. We can construct a carbon tax which does that, absolutely. And if you combine that with a system of localized production of agriculture, local jobs, uh, you know, it, you know, and one of the things that I'm I'm really intrigued by in the pandemic is how we have seen that uh, there are other ways of doing your job other than moving to an office every day. You know, we've, we're beginning to learn that you can actually do a lot of productive work at home. Uh, and I think that that's one of the ways in which we can uh, help to reduce the dependence upon fossil fuels and energy consumption uh, in order to, you know, that, that people are currently engaged in in order to engage in a livelihood. So there is a whole uh, way, a range of ways in which we can ensure that ordinary Canadians are not impacted negatively by a carbon levy. Uh, but we have to be creative. We have to be uh, intelligent about it. We have to be evidence-based about it. It can be done. At the end of the day, it is in the interests of workers themselves and ordinary Canadians themselves and their children that we move off of fossil fuels as rapidly as possible. There's a way to do that, and I think, we, I think we're on the right path. 
Now, one of the areas that you just talked about, and it sort of goes into my next set of questions here, is uh, with COVID-19, it seems that the new norm is staying at home, working from home. Um, it, it has changed the way that we interact with uh, uh, each other and even just doing our day-to-day, uh, we're going about our day-to-day lives. Um in your opinion, do you think this government is doing enough to help day-to-day Canadians get through this pandemic? I think it's made some good progress in that regard. It was very slow off the mark. Uh, it came under a lot of pressure from the opposition parties. By the way, I think this is one of the reasons why we should really uh, be in favor of a proportional representation system. I think what we have seen in this pandemic is how Uh, the fact that the government of the day does not enjoy a majority in parliament forces it to respond to the needs and demands of the opposition parties and who represent a majority of Canadians. A majority of Canadians are represented by the opposition in this parliament. And um, so I I, I think, you know, if we can... I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. No, and the reason I'm asking this is because one of the uh, key uh, policies that you've put forward is a basic income. And we are seeing that uh, this government has announced that uh, Canadians who who are eligible, um, whether that be figured out later on, but anyone who applies uh, can get $2,000 a month as a basic income to supplement their potential loss of job. Um, Yes. Moving forward, that will probably be taken away. How do how does the Green Party advocate for a basic universal basic income in today's society when we are still trying to get by day to day with COVID-19? Right. So let me now you reminded me what your question was. So <laughs> I'm going to come back to the basic income in one second. Yeah, no problem. So, so let's talk about the two thousand uh, dollars. And I said it. I said it. I started answering your question by saying that uh, you know it had made some progress. It was a little bit slow off the mark, uh, but it needed to do more. So two thousand uh, dollars, first of all, might make sense for persons living in a low cost uh, jurisdiction. But in other, con- in other parts of the country where the cost of lease is extremely high, it's not necessarily sufficient in order to uh, ensure that people meet their basic needs. So that's one problem. Uh, one of the things that I immediately advocated for at the time that uh, the Trudeau government announced its initial round of uh, measures to deal with the pandemic was that we should uh, legislate an interest holiday so that people were not actually Uh, required for at least a period of three months, a minimum period of three months, to pay interest on their credit card debt uh, and on their consumer loans and on their mortgage loans. Uh, That's not something that the government did. It should have done that. Our banks make money hand over fist. Uh, They have been profitable, extremely profitable for years. Even during the financial crisis, they, for the most part, maintained a healthy degree of profitability. They can do without the interest income Uh, during an extraordinary economic crisis like this. So I fault the Trudeau government for not having legislated uh, an interest holiday. What it did was it basically asked the the banks to play nice on credit card interest rates. And even though the the Bank of Canada lowered uh, uh, its interest rates to uh, unprecedented low levels, the government did not actually require banks to lower credit card interest. So that's one way in which I fault the government. Another way in which I faulted the government was that it not deal with the fact that Canadians, a lot of Canadians who are renters were not able to pay rent. 
Now, it started to make moves belatedly in that direction. It started to address the fact that rental obligations were crushing a lot of people who were just sort of getting by. Um, so those are, that's another way in which uh, I think that the government could have done much better. Uh, but on the whole, I think it has done a decent job, albeit um, an inadequate job, of dealing with the needs of the most vulnerable Canadians and ordinary Canadians in this economic crisis. Now, to deal with the question of UBI, I think if anything good comes out of this crisis, it will be uh, the realization that we have the means at our disposal to ensure a basic income to all Canadians. We've been told for years that the government could not spend the money that was necessary uh, to ensure that every Canadian had his or her basic needs met. And if anything has been proven by this crisis, it is that that was a myth. We have the ability to do that. We have the ability to do that, for example, by ensuring, uh, by, by taking out interest free loans from the Bank of Canada, which is something that the people within the Green Party have been advocating for for a long time, including myself, the Bank of Canada has the, le- the legislative mandate to extend interest-free loans to the government. The government has the ability to create currency, and it should use that ability. There's absolutely no reason to believe that that is going to result in hyperinflation, which is the typical argument that has been used. Uh, you know, in the financial crisis of 2007-2009, the central banks of all the major economies created massive amounts of currency. Everybody said at the time, uh, everybody of a neoliberal orientation said at the time that this was going to result in hyperinflation. In fact, it didn't. And in fact, some jurisdictions, including the European Union, almost fell into a state of deflation at the same time that the European Central Bank was creating massive amounts of currency. So that is a huge potential source of of revenue uh, for the creation of of universal basic income. And also there is the fact that the most wealthy Canadians and large corporations are not paying their fair share of taxes. That is another source of revenue in order to provide a universal basic income to all Canadians. We can do it. This dem- this crisis has demonstrated we can do it. And if we do it, not only will that create a more socially just society, but will also decrease the costs that certain institutions of government are incurring today. So for example, the healthcare system when you have people who are falling into a state of poverty and homelessness, that creates costs for the healthcare system. Those people have, you know, extraordinary health problems, and understandably so, that have to be dealt with by uh, our national healthcare system. The policing system, you know, there are costs in terms of policing as arising from, from poverty and homelessness. This contributed. This contributes to crime, for example. So there are costs that we are going to diminish or eliminate altogether by ensuring that no Canadian falls into poverty. And we have the resources to ensure that Canadians do not fall into poverty. And I was very heartened to see that, uh, you know, a major government in, in Europe, the Spanish government, within the last two months has actually began to move towards a permanent use, a universal income. And there's a lot of talk about this in Europe now. The environment is ripe for a universal basic income. This is something that the Green Party of Canada has championed for years. I think we have the the best opportunity we've ever had to persuade Canadians that this is the way to go. Now, it did um, the Ontario government in 2000, I want to say 2013 or 14, did start introducing a universal basic income for uh, a trial run, I should say, of universal basic income. And then the current uh, conservative government did uh, cancel that when they came into power. Um, 
the buy-in is there, I believe. And like you said, uh, when you talk to Canadians, they, they are in favor of it. But there are that minority who say, how are you going to pay for it? And you've just mentioned how you're going to pay for it. So thank you very much for that. Um, moving forward, uh, we, we look at the the, uh, the green infrastructure infrastructure that we will need to help uh, put displaced uh, workers in back to work. Um, what are some of the key priorities for yourself to get more green infrastructure on uh, built? Is it uh, windmills? Is it oh, wind farms? Is it solar panels? How? What green infrastructure are you particularly looking at to help Canada as a whole? All of the above. I mean, you know, uh, wind uh, power, uh, solar power, but we, you know, it's not just the, the means by which we generate energy uh, that matters. Uh, it's also the amount of energy that we're consuming that matters. So we need to retrofit buildings. We need to be having a conversation in this country, you know, also localizing our employment, localizing our agricultural production, uh, not having uh, uh, a system of trade that uh, makes us reliant on far-flung jurisdictions for our basic necessities. So, for example, importing things from China that we need, importing things from uh, other parts of the world that uh, that are far away and uh, that require us to generate massive greenhouse gas emissions in order to transport the products here. We need to localize production. We need to invest massively in renewable sources of energy. We need to reduce our energy consumption, massively increase efficiency in uh, energy usage. Uh, we need to rely to a far greater degree uh, on public transportation. We are underinvested when it comes to public transportation. I, I'm astound, astonished that in this country we don't have a high, spa- high speed uh, rail system. I think that's amazing. You know, one has existed in Europe for decades. Canada, in many ways, is ideally suited, especially in the Windsor uh, Quebec City corridor. Uh, and also from Calgary to uh, Edmonton, why don't we have high-speed rail in those in, in those uh, parts of the country? Uh, that would greatly uh, reduce our, our reliance on uh, combustion engine vehicles. Uh, so, and also, but within municipalities, increasing our investment in uh, public transportation would go a long way towards. Uh, I think would do gr- tremendous good in terms of dealing with our greenhouse gas emissions. A, I don't think we can only rely upon investment in renewable energy to solve this problem. We also have to rely upon energy usage, the quantum of our energy usage, and energy efficiency. That's absolutely critical. Now, you, you talk about this high-speed rail system. I've always advocated that we do need it because uh, I, I think we underutilize the space that we have in this country. And uh, rail systems are the easiest, they're the quickest, and they potentially could save the uh, cost the least amount, especially when they are uh, green. Um if we can't break down the barriers to trade provincially, how would we potentially introduce a rail system that would go from coast to coast to coast? How do we break down the barriers to work uh, collaboratively as a country, provincial, province-wise, when we can't even agree to trade alcohol or beer province-wide? How do you how do you see a potential Canadian government helping provinces work together to work on these issues like, hey, we want to create a high speed rail system from Edmonton to potentially Winnipeg because it possibly could be done? 
Well, I, I look, I, maybe I'm missing something, but I'm not aware of uh, sort of a public groundswell against high-speed rail from uh, you know Calgary to Winnipeg. I mean, if it's there, I'm, that's news to me. Uh, I don't think we necessarily have to have a, a you know a coast-to-coast high-speed rail system in order to use high-speed rail in order to uh, re- you know reduce our reliance upon combustion engine vehicles. So we could do this regionally. It doesn't have to be a national system. We can make a lot of progress in that regard. Personally, I think if you set up, for example, a high-speed rail system between Calgary and Edmonton and another one from Windsor to Quebec City which I think is eminently doable uh, you know I, th- that that doesn't involve I mean, I, you know Quebec and Ontario have cooperated in the past for example when it comes to a cap-and-trade system I think you can easily sell uh, Canadian uh, Ontarians and Quebecers on that I think you could sell the people of Alberta on a high-speed rail system from Calgary and Edmonton and guess what once people actually see that in operation and they live it day to day I think this country is going to fall in love with high-speed rail. No, understandable. I, I, I lived in France for three years. You know, I took high-speed rail all the time. The French love the high-speed rail system. It's a pleasure to take high-speed rail. Don't. How much more enjoyable is that than driving your car, you know, from Calgary to Edmonton or from London to Toronto or Toronto to Montreal? It's such a pleasure. I mean, people need to actually experience it. And then I think there will be a love affair with high-speed rail in this country. Uh, sort of a side anecdote here. I did take the high-speed rail system from Amsterdam to Paris, and they had to slow it down because it was too hot outside, so it couldn't run the same speed as it traditionally does. So a trip that should have taken about 90 minutes took six hours. So my my one enjoyment of high-speed rail was not the most positive experience that I've ever had. <laughs> I never experienced that, but you know what? If we were dealing with a climate crisis, maybe that kind of thing would happen a lot less often. Oh, so. <laughs> exactly. Um, now, you talked about trade, about um, bringing in uh, Chinese products, and you want to start uh, producing more locally, um, maybe whether it be farming, agriculture, uh, day-to-day uh, resources. Are you in favor of ripping up like the NAFTA 2.0 or however you Donald Trump wants to call it now, the China Free Trade Agreement, and start working more on producing local resources here in Canada? I think ripping up may be a bit of a strong term. I would I would certainly want to renegotiate it. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so, uh, and not just NAFTA or whatever they're calling it nowadays, yes. but any, any trade agreement that is... Uh, that is inhibiting our ability to ensure local production of essential goods and services, that is inhibiting our government's ability to enact environmental regulations that are necessary in the public interest, uh, or consumer protection legislation that is necessary in the public interest, I would absolutely want to renegotiate that. I would take a dramatically different approach to trade relations uh, with Canada's trading partners. So, for example, I would get rid of the investor Uh, state dispute resolution mechanisms. I don't think that private corporations should have the right to sue our government if they feel that we have taken a measure that is in the public interest, which happens to have the effect of reducing their profitability. I just don't think they should have that right. So I'd get rid of it altogether. I would ensure that any country with which we enter into a trade agreement agrees to minimum standards on workers' rights, environmental protection, and consumer protection. There has to be a certain healthy minimum standard of regulation on all those three fronts in 
any country with which we have a so-called free trade agreement. If they are, if, if a country in, with which we have entered into such an agreement has the ability to adopt regulatory or, or not adopt laws which are protecting the environment, protecting consumers, protecting workers, and are therefore decreasing dramatically the cost of production for, for, for uh, industries and corporations in their jurisdiction, then what is going to happen is exactly what we have seen happen, which is an outflow of jobs and production to those foreign jurisdictions. Corporations are going to seek inevitably, because they're only concerned about profits, the lowest cost jurisdiction. So if they can go and produce their goods in India or China, and India and China are offering them a much more, uh, a much less rigorous regulatory regime when it comes to the environment, when it comes to workers, if they can pay their workers a dollar an hour in India, if they can get away with polluting the environment in India in a ways that they can't do here, they're going to they're going to shift their production over there. You know, so the only way we can prevent this from happening and seeing jobs bleed to jurisdictions which have much weaker regulatory protections for the public than we do is to ensure that our trade ag agreements require our trading partners to have certain minimum decent levels of protection for the workers and the environment and consumers. Now, if you do start saying, hey, we're not going to have a free, uh, a tra a free trade agreement with potential uh, countries who are going to abuse the system, abuse those human rights, uh, abuse the environmental issues. The companies are not just going to say, pick up one day and to say, okay, well, if Canada's not going to uh, work with this country, we're going to close up shop and move back to Canada. It's still cheaper there. It's still going to be easier to make their product there because they do have the uh, less, uh, less red tape there when it comes to environmental work, when it comes to uh, worker safety. How do you attract those businesses back to Canada? Because that's the main thing that's happened over the last, uh, I would say, 20, 30 years is companies are leaving Canada for those havens where they could potentially lower their costs. How do you bring back a Canadian a company to Canada when costs will still be the same as when they left? Well, but the reason why they're doing that is because these free trade agreements eliminate tariff barriers. So you're that's, you're in favor of tariffs on companies. Well, if, if the products are being made in a jurisdiction where there are inadequate environmental uh, environmental protections, consumer protections, uh, human rights protections, worker protections, yeah, I would slap tariffs on them, 100. percent You know, and then it wouldn't be profitable for them to make their products in those jurisdictions. They would be forced to make the products locally. That's the choice that we should be putting these multinational corporations to. Either you make the products in jurisdictions that have minimum levels of protections for the environment, human rights, consumers, and workers, okay, or we don't sell your products in our country. It's up to you. We can make those products locally, and that's what we're going to do if you do not play ball. Do you think you have the buy-in from Canadians on that? I'm sorry? Do you think you'd have the buy-in from Canadians on that, though? Yeah. If they understand exactly how this game is being played, this idea that we have a free trade system, that's nonsense. What we have is a corporate arbitrage system where where basically these corporations are running around and going to the lowest common denominator. Like what, what is the cheapest jurisdiction in which I can make my products? What is the jurisdiction in which I can you know, abuse workers the most? 
destroy the environment the most, take the most advantage of consumers? What is the jurisdiction in which I can violate the human rights of people the most without, and get away with it? That's where they are going to produce their products. If Canadians understand that that's the way this so-called free trade system works, and I think they are really beginning to understand that, they will be completely on board with the idea that we need to dramatically renegotiate our trade agreements, that they are not actually free trade agreements. They are corporate arbitrage agreements. That's what they are. That are designed to profit corporations to the detriment of ordinary uh, citizens. And that's why we've ended up with the, the situation that we have today. Understandable. Um, in uh, in open and honest transparency here, uh, we are heading up into our hour, uh, the hour part of the show. Uh, I, I want to make sure everyone has their fair share of time. Um, Dimitri, I want to thank you very much for this. Greatly appreciate it. Before we do go, though, uh, I, I give this to all the other candidates as well, and I'll give this to you. You, you, you have two to four minutes or five minutes or whatever, however long you want to take, pitch yourself to the Canadian that's listening right now. And why should they join the Green Party of Canada and support you in this leadership of uh, the Green Party of Canada? Well, those are two questions. Let me talk, first of all, about why they should support the Green Party. And they're related questions because, you know, it's not just about what the Green Party is. It is also a significant consideration. You know, what does the leadership of this party look like? So those two questions are related. I think every Canadian who's looking at this leadership contest should first start by asking him or herself, what are my core values and what are the values of this party? And do these values speak to me? Okay. And I'm going to reiterate what those are because it's very important. Participatory democracy, social justice, respect for diversity, uh, sustainability, ecological wisdom, and uh, nonviolence. Okay, those are our six core values. If those values speak to you, this is your party. No other party has those six core values, not any party represented in parliament. That is what we are. Now, if you have a leader at the helm of this party, who has an, an ability to actually defend those values, explain those values to Canadians, and put up with the inevitable resistance from the establishment, from the wealthy, from corporations, to the implementation of a program that really reflects those values, then this is a party you wanna get behind, 100%. And whether it's me or somebody else, you know, it doesn't have to be me. This is this 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 electoral can uh, this this leadership campaign isn't ultimately about any particular leadership candidate, whether that be me or any of my colleagues who are running to be leader. It's really about the vision of 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 what this country ought to be, and what we as Canadians really are. Who are we, as Canadians? Ask yourself that. Ask yourself if this party represents who you are as a Canadian. Ask yourself if the leadership candidate represents the values that that you uh, feel yourself to be. And if that's uh, if that speaks to you, then this is a race you want to get involved in. Whatever your prior political affiliation may have been, whether you were a liberal, an NDP, or even a conservative, whether you're an independent, it is time to get involved. It is time to get engaged. And this is an opportunity for you to do that. If you stand aside and don't get involved politically in this country, whatever your political engagement may be, we are in serious trouble. We need the people of this country to come together and become engaged to a far greater degree than they have ever been. We cannot tolerate a situ situation anymore where 8 million Canadians don't vote. We cannot tolerate a situation anymore where we have a party that represents, that has that captured less than 40% of the persons who vote 
which represents only about 60% of eligible voters, you know, uh, having a majority of the of the seats within parliament. We can't tolerate that situation anymore. It is going to result in a society that is profoundly undemocratic and unsustainable. I think this is a great opportunity for Canadians to get involved and to and, and really to begin. And it, in a way, it's kind of poetic in a, in a strange way that this is happening during an unprecedented crisis in our country, that this leadership race is happening during that time. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a valuable opportunity for, for us all to reflect on the kind of country we want to have. And uh, again, whether people support my candidacy or don't, I urge them to become involved in the Green Party of Canada leadership race because this can be a turning point for our country. Awesome. Uh, Dimitri, I want to thank you very much for this. Uh, to the listeners, uh, like I said in the about an hour ago uh, the uh, Dimitri's uh, website will be in the show notes plus uh, a link to join the Green Party of Canada as well will be in the show notes Dimitri I want to take this time one last time and say thank you for doing this well I really want to thank you Chris that you've you've actually taken the time to interview all you know all the leadership candidates or many of the leadership candidates I can't thank you enough for doing that Uh, especially at a time I think is probably stressful for you as it is for me and for everybody else in this country. Uh, It's so wonderful to see this level of political engagement from people like you. And thank you. Thank you for doing this, Chris. Well, uh, just a side note. uh, I started this project like about two days before I got my uh, final negative result for COVID because I dealt, I battled COVID uh, during the month of uh, March and it was not the most happiest time in my life. So this is my way to give back and try to get back that conversation to go get, get that conversation going again. I'm thrilled to learn that you overcame it. Thank thank you so much for doing this. No problem. Thanks very much. And have yourself an excellent day. Okay. You too. Take care. You too. Once again, thank you to our guest for coming in and sitting down today. It was greatly appreciated. As I've said in the introduction, this podcast is about having a conversation. I learned a lot in this interview, and I really hope you did too. This podcast couldn't have happened without our listeners. From here in Alberta to across Canada and around the world, I want to take this moment and thank everyone for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. The links are in the show notes. Or visit our website at www.crossborderinterviews.ca. We will be back here next Saturday with another great episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. This podcast is produced and owned by Miranda Brown and Associates. I'm your host, Christopher Brown. Once again, have a safe and hopefully talkative week. Mm